Please do join me in taking out your Bibles and turning uh, to Peter's second letter. Uh, first and second Peter come right before first, second, and third John, which comes before Jude, which comes before Revelation. So toward the end of the New Testament. As we spend some time in God's Word, let's first go to Him in prayer. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we ask that you would unstop our deaf ears so that we could hear your truth. That you would heal our blind eyes so that we could see your truth. Oh, Father, indeed, open our hearts to your word and open your word to our hearts so that we would know what we are to believe about you and what duty you ask of your people, and as we do our duty, Father, help us to do it with a humble reliance upon Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen. So Lord willing, next week we begin Ecclesiastes, but it just so happens that this is a great opportunity to follow up on the fact that grace has appeared, that we saw from Titus chapter 2, and that peace has arrived, that we saw last week from Ephesians 2. And as you heard uh, when Paul was being emphasized that he begins all of his letters and ends almost all of his letters with those two words early on and and very near the end, grace and peace. Um, Peter also opens both of his letters and he closes both of his letters with grace and peace. Here's how 1 Peter 1 begins, uh, 1 Peter 1, 2, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. I mean, he, he ups it on, on Paul. He said, may grace and peace be multiplied. And, and he, he ends in chapter 5 with a reference to grace and to peace. And 2 Peter chapter 1 opens up in verse 2 with this same expression, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. But then in the second letter, he goes on to say, in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. So not only grace and peace just be multiplied to you, but he gives kind of a qualifier and, a, and an addition. In the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. And we'll see that today because Peter concludes this second letter with references to grace and peace as well. And that will be our subject today for the next few minutes. I think many of us hear this question all the time, and I don't know about you, but sometimes I don't think before I answer. But here's the question. How are you? How are you? Now, there are lots of answers to that question. In fact, take a moment right now and answer that to yourself. Someone asks, how are you? What would you say in response? And there are a lot of answers. But what's your answer right now, today, to that question? How are you? Could one of those Answers amongst many that could be said, could one of those answers be this? I'm at peace 
and growing in grace. Could that be one of your answers to the question, how are you? And you say, I'm at peace and I'm growing in grace. Well, Peter wants his readers then and now to be able to respond to that question, how are you, with this answer. That you can honestly say, I'm at peace and growing in grace. That I will be found on the last day, the day when Jesus returns or my last day here on earth. That I would be found on that day at peace and growing in grace. Join with me now as I read uh, verses 14 through 18 of 2 Peter chapter 3. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, and the these is the new heavens and the new earth, right there in verse 13, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do other, the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, Take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. A few words about the background of 2 Peter. We're not absolutely certain of the when and where, but we think from Rome in the mid to late 60s. And and the recipients, um, if, if chapter 3, verse 1 refers to 1 Peter, now the second letter, then Christians in Asia Minor, that is modern-day Turkey, are the audience. And the outline, roughly, of 2 Peter is this, spiritual growth and maturity, false teachers, and the return of Christ. 1 Peter, his first letter, responds mainly to an external threat. Believers are facing persecution. And here in 2 Peter, Peter is mainly addressing an internal threat. The church and believers facing false teaching. Now a word or two about false teaching in general. It's a problem and a source of trouble for the church in every generation. And false teaching is often subtle. And false teaching is always dangerous. It's not limited to the official teaching, as it were, coming from the pulpit, but from the pew as well. Second Peter is a call to be vigilant. And Second Peter serves as a warning to every congregation, then and now, even congregations that you would think are healthy and stable. Because false teachers twist the gospel, either taking from the gospel or adding to the gospel, and in doing so, there's the potential to damage the faith of believers. In particular, as Paul is going to, excuse me, Peter is going to address a loss of certainty, of assurance, of stability. Now, what is this false teaching that 
Peter is addressing here in his second letter. It's, it's difficult to define, but most likely it's a precursor, kind of an early version of what came to be known as Gnosticism, where there was a special secret knowledge that the spiritual, as it were, is good and the material is evil. Now, our personal letters tend to wind down toward the end, sort of trail off, but New Testament letters seem to wind up toward the end. And indeed, many letters in their last few sentences often summarize the themes of the letter as a whole. And these last five verses in 2 Peter capture how we are all to live while we're waiting for the return of Jesus Christ, waiting for the arrival of the new heavens and the new earth. While we're waiting, we hope and work to be found at peace and growing in grace. Now in these final two verses, which will be the focus of what we're looking at today, Peter concludes with a dual exhortation, one negative and one positive, which leads, as we will see, to the highest of all possible commands, the greatest calling, indeed the chief purpose for which you and I were made. Look again at verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Be diligent to be found by Jesus when he returns, or when you meet him, at peace. And remember last week as we looked at Jesus being himself our peace from, second, from, excuse me, from Ephesians 2, verse 11. If Jesus Christ is our peace, then there's some consequences. First, our relationship with God is restored. We're at peace with God. Our relationship to ourself is finding rest. We're settling down with ourself, as it were. And our relationships to one another are being reconciled. It's the already and not yet. They're better than they once were, but they're not yet what they one day will be. They're being reconciled. Now, Peter, in these words, is going to follow up this call to be diligent to be found by him at peace with a call down in verse 17 to take care, to take care, to be on your guard. Now, the false teachers, as it were, are disturbing the peace, disturbing the peace. I think there's still got to be laws on the books, right? The sheriff can arrest you. Why? For disturbing the peace. Peter is saying in one way or another. The, the false teachers are attempting to disturb your peace. Your peace with God. Your peace as it were with yourself. And certainly your peace with others. With other believers. False teachers are disturbing the peace. Now what's to be done? Well look at verse 17. Here's a command. Take care. Take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. You, therefore. Note that this is a contrast between the false teachers and the distorters of Scripture and the readers of Peter's epistle. 
He's distinguishing between the false teachers and the believers. You, therefore. And he's writing them, what? Beloved, dear friends. It's a tender address. He does this at chapter 3, verse 1, and chapter 3, verse 14. Even in his language, Peter is encouraging believers, offering guidance. Peter is the, the, the shepherd as he writes in 1 Peter 5. He loves them. And because he loves them, he's offering a word of exhortation. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand. Well, what is this? You see, Peter is here picking up a major theme of his letter. And that is false teachers are to be expected. And the promise of Christ's return is a doctrine that will come under constant attack. Right? We've all seen it. When? When's he going to return? A number of the New Testament letters address that issue. Paul has to address it to the Thessalonians. Here, Peter is addressing it. He's really reminding them what they already know. He wants them to have a firmer grasp of the truth. And so he, the good shepherd, the good teacher, is reminding them what they already know. Take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. In other words, it's sort of synonymous with be found by him at peace. Don't be carried away and lose your stability. Take care, guard, he says, protect, defend, be wise. Be on guard against error and deceit. Guard themselves against the arguments of the wicked, lawless men. Know the truth, know doctrine. Therefore, recognize error, he's saying. Know God's moral and ethical expectations, how to live. Therefore, know how to recognize lawless behavior. Not carried away with error. The image here is, is, is being close, close to the false teachers, close to the wicked lawless, so that you really can be carried away by them. It's like, interestingly, the lawless teacher would reach out their hand to help. And the next thing you know, you are being carried away. And he uses this expression again, to lose your own stability. Peter's not just writing new converts. He's writing growing, maturing believers. Because anyone can, as it were, come under the influence of false teachers. And there's a number of warnings, of course, in Scripture to to take heed lest you fall. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Um, Work out, as it were, that which is worked in you. With our men's prayer that meets monthly, we often look at this verse from Hebrews 3. See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you are hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Be warned. Check. Make sure. Be with others. Pray for one another. Encourage one another. Why? Because we all have blind spots. And the false teachers can influence us. 
and lead us astray. Now, this stability here gives the image of being firmly established in the faith and in the truth. And John Calvin, in commenting on these verses, has something interesting to say. He says this warning here is not to shake the firmness of our faith, but rather to correct the sloth of our flesh. That is things like laziness, idleness, sluggishness. Remember, warning lights on your dashboard are good things, aren't they? They get your attention. And here, Peter is getting his reader's attention, our attention. Peter here is echoing Jesus' warnings to watch and to pray. Peter is summing up and saying that false teaching from the pulpit, from the pew, is a clear and present danger for the church then and now as it disturbs the peace, the peace that's found in Jesus and the peace that's given to all those who come to him in repentance and faith. Well, not only is there a negative warning, take care, Guard, but also there's a positive exhortation, and we see that in verse 18. Um, grow. Christians, we know, are, are, are called to say no, as we saw from Titus 2, but we're also called to say yes. And in many ways, the best way to guard or to take care is to grow, to grow in the grace and knowledge. Notice verse 18 begins, but. Once again, that three-letter conjunction, so important. It prepares now for a reversal of course. The steering wheel is turned, the rudder is shifted, but, but grow, but grow. And for those of you that like to take apart English and look at the language, this grow here is the idea of you're already growing and continue to grow. It's both an encouragement and a challenge. It's like a good parent who who offers not only a word of encouragement, you're growing, but a word of exhortation, continue to grow. You're maturing, now continue to mature. You're running well, keep at it. And Paul does that in particular in uh, his first letter to the Thessalonians and elsewhere. Persevere, advance in the journey. Uh, Peter here is ending his letter as he had begun it on the subject of growth. If you flip back over to first, excuse me, Second Peter one, chapter uh, uh, verse eight, where he says, "For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ." Increasing, growing, and notice it's growth in the grace. And knowledge. Grace. Well, we've been looking at it recently, several senses in the scriptures. Of course, God's favor. We see that in Ephesians 2. We see it as divine power, where we receive mercy and find grace. We see that in uh, Hebrews 4. Uh, Jesus himself, the scripture says, is full of grace and truth. It's, it's a godlike character. And as we saw from Ephesians Excuse me, uh, from Titus to grace is Jesus himself. And Peter is arguing here that, that understanding grace is the foundation for the stability as a Christian. 
Not only grace, but also knowledge. Not abstract knowledge about Christ, but intimate, personal, close knowledge of Christ flowing from a vital union as the branches are connected to the vine. It's a, it's a knowledge that both understands and a knowledge that experiences it. We all know that rich personal knowledge and experience grows out of genuine understanding. Think of relationships between friends, between siblings, between spouses. Think of marriage. There's an initial union, but then there's ongoing communion. One commentator has said this, knowledge of Christ and knowledge about Christ are, if they keep pace with one another, both the safeguard against heresy and apostasy, and also the means of growth in grace. Did you hear that? It's knowledge not only of Christ, but knowledge about Christ. Or I should have probably flipped that. It's not just knowing about who Jesus is, it's knowing Christ intimately, personally. It's the grace here and the knowledge about Jesus that they have. But they've been given it by Jesus. Indeed, if you look back to chapter 1, verse 3, we read of his divine power, his divine grace, as it were, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. You see how important the knowledge is? And we've been given it, granted it. For those of you looking at uh, the daily Bible studies from uh, Table Talk, know that a little bit ago we saw the comments or the study on 2 Corinthians 8 9. And here, hear how Paul reflects on the, the relationship of knowledge and grace. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that by his poverty you might become rich. For you know the grace. You know Jesus. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Here, it's kind of a nice place to remind ourselves that the Christian life is like riding a bicycle. It's not that you ever forget to ride, right? I mean, kids, come on. The bike's been in the garage for a while, right? You can get back on and go, right? It's not that you forget how to ride. It's that if you're not moving, what happens? You fall off. Have any of you been able to stay on a bike, it not move, and you don't fall off? Anybody? I don't think any of us could do that. Unless you keep moving, you fall off. I mean, the Christian life, in one sense, is getting to know the inexhaustible riches of grace in Christ. Are you done in a moment? Are we going to be done with the benediction today? Are we going to be done at the end of the day, next week, next year? The Christian life is a life that moves forward. One speaker at a conference on discipleship years ago made a statement along these lines. 
in encouraging us to, to pursue Jesus and encouraging us to deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him. He said, brothers, you glide like a rock. In other words, there's no gliding in the Christian life. He went on to say, it's power on all the way. But of course, it's not a power that we ourselves can gin up. It's a power of the Holy Spirit in us. Growth is a vital sign of life because living things grow. And notice how Peter addresses our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I want to reflect for a couple minutes on this title for Jesus and unpack its meaning. In 2 Peter, no less than four times we have this addressing of Jesus as our Lord and Savior. Nowhere else in the New Testament. Paul doesn't use it. The writers of the four Gospels don't use it. Now, now to be sure, the concept is there. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Savior. But only Peter uses this, as it were, as a literal title. Because I believe what is happening is Peter here is proclaiming the gospel through the use of this title for Jesus. You see, he's saying it's the Lord versus be your own Lord. Be your own ruler. Irreligion. I'm going to go and live any way I want to live. But he's also highlighting that it's the Savior versus be your own Savior. Be your own rescuer. Using religion, as it were, as a crutch. A do-it-your-safe savior. You remember Home Depot used to have that slogan? You can do it. We can help. In other words, we can take your money, right? You can do it. We can help. But the gospel, understood rightly, says, you know what? You can't do it. But Jesus can do it. In fact, Jesus has done it for all those who trust in him. You see, Peter is using this title, Lord and Savior, to highlight the fact that the gospel is not a compromise third way between irreligion and religion. But it's something counterintuitive. It's something that none of us could have come up with our own and it shatters the categories of irreligion and religion. Because Peter is wanting his readers and us to know that the gospel, it, it opposes, on the one hand, self-ruling irreligion. As seen as in hedonism, pursuit of pleasure, relativism, there's no truth. But it also opposes, on the other hand, self-saving religion as seen in legalism and moralism. In other words, the gospel says that our problem is not just failing in our obedience to God, but also relying on our obedience to God. Because we're called to rely on Jesus. I mean, we see that in the parable of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. There's really two prodigal sons. The younger, I'm trying to be my own Lord. The older, I'm trying to be my own Savior. And both missed the mark in their relationship with their father. Both were estranged from their father. One by breaking all the rules and one by keeping all the rules. 
So as we hear these words, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, as you hear Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, ask yourself, where am I acting as my own Lord today? Or ask yourself, where am I acting as my own Savior today? Here in the context of 2 Peter, he and is directing his readers to look to the return of Jesus as both Lord with the power to judge on the last day and Savior, the willingness to rescue us on that day. Salvation is indeed, as Jonah says, of the Lord with the power to save and the authority to rule. And we as Christians, we trust in his promises as Savior and we obey his commands as Lord. Spiritual growth. If you look back in chapter 1, there's a movement from faith to love. And he's highlighting it again. Now when you hear this command, grow, it really is a a command to do the impossible, isn't it, humanly speaking? How many of us have either said or received these words, grow up, right? We've started complaining, we're, we're chafing at something, and a parent, a boss, a good friend says, grow up. Grow up. How, how do you do that? I mean, just this very command, grow in the grace drives us to acknowledge and live out our dependence upon God. Remember Jesus' words? I have to read this and think about this every day. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And yet Paul would write in one of his letters, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Apart from me, you can do nothing, Jesus said. It drives us to his means of growth, his means of grace, his word, the sacraments in prayer. Now being or remaining at peace by guarding the truth from the assaults of the false teaching, seeking to disturb the peace of the church, and in growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ, we are transformed. But something more happens. Notice how he ends. Christ is glorified. Peter concludes with a doxology to Christ. But this doxology is more than just a statement of praise to Christ, to God. It's a call. It's a command to glorify Christ. Look at how the verse ends. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. To him be the glory. It's the highest possible Christology here. Jesus is God. God, Glory belongs to God. Glory belongs to Jesus. In the original language, it's simply to him glory. Be the glory. It's kind of abstract, right? I struggle with that. What does it mean to glorify God? I think we can get some help from the first catechism or the children's catechism. Uh, I'm going to back it up and do question five before question four. Kids, if you know this, help me answer. Why are you to glorify God? 
because he made me and takes care of me, right? Why? Why are you to glorify God? Because he made me and takes care of me. But then, question four, going backwards, how can you glorify God? By loving him and doing what he commands. How are you to glorify God? By loving him and doing what he commands. I, I don't think our shorter catechism actually captures it so well. I'm thankful here for the children's catechism. It's helpful because it states the obvious, and we need a reminder of the obvious. Because it's always tempting to glorify ourselves and not God. Whether it's here from the pulpit, and my job in many ways is to get out of the way, let people see Christ and the gospel. You know, Truth be told, what a, a faithful preacher, a pastor, a minister wants to hear is not a great sermon, pastor, but what a great Savior we have. Get out of the way. Let them see Jesus. But all of us together, you and me, we're all called to lead people to Christ. We can't make people believe, but we can certainly point people to the Lord, to the Savior. You know, the advertising that is relentless says over and over again, it's all about you. Here, Peter is ending his letter to say, no, it's all about Jesus Christ. God displays His glory in His revelation in Christ. And we give God glory in response to that. It's not an afterthought. It's the climax. It's the conclusion. It's echoing what Paul says when he says, do all to the glory of God. And when now, the present day, and when to the day of eternity, it's a striking and unusual expression. It's drawing attention really off of the present to the future. And it causes us to pause, to think, and reflect. The glory of Christ here closes the epistle, and the glory of Christ will close this age when he comes in glory to judge and to separate the righteous and the wicked. And the wicked are those who, in a word, have exalted themselves, who have said, it's all about me, and it's... Only the righteous, that is those who have a righteousness not of their own, who are able to say it's all about Christ. Being at peace by guarding the truth and growing in grace, we glorify Christ, the one who indeed is full of grace and truth. Second Peter begins where it ends where it began with grace and peace, peace and grace. And in these last two verses, in particular, we've seen the guarded Christian, the growing Christian, and the glorious Christ. And I think this is good news. But some of us may be discouraged right now. Now how, after hearing this, could we be discouraged? Well, here's how. Because right now, we may not believe we are at peace. We may not believe we're growing. In fact, we may, for real, 
not be at peace. And we may be for real, not growing. But I want to turn the corner on discouragement here by reminding all of us who it is who wrote this letter. Who is it? Peter. Remember him? Remember his personal experience? Remember him thinking he knew better than Jesus? Avoid the cross? Jesus did not tell prostitutes, did not tell tax collectors. He told Peter, get behind me, Satan. Peter promised to never abandon Jesus. Peter denied Jesus. This letter, my friends, flows from Peter's heart, a heart that was once broken, but now restored. Remember, after the resurrection, Jesus restored Peter. He restored him. It was, he was transformed by the power of the resurrection. He was transformed by the coming of the Holy Spirit. You see, during his earthly ministry, Peter was outwardly for Jesus, but inwardly he was only for himself. Now, as Peter meets the, the resurrected Jesus, he's now becoming more fully committed to another. Because you see, Peter has encountered the grace and the peace of the gospel in the flesh of the risen, the reigning, and the returning Christ. And Jesus says to men and women, boys and girls then, and he still says it now, come, follow me. May God be pleased to find all of us here at Grace and Peace on the last day when Jesus returns or on our last day when our heart stops, our breathing stops, and we enter into the presence of the Lord, may he find us at peace with God, with ourselves, with one another. And may he find us even on that day growing in the grace of and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank You for this call to be at peace and to grow in grace. And Father, we acknowledge that only living things grow. And so we pray, Father, that you would, you would show us even today that you are indeed completing the good work that you have begun in our lives when we came to faith in Jesus. Father, help us to run the race of repentance all our days. Father, help us to, to enjoy present union and communion with Jesus by faith. Oh, Father, 
be pleased to grow us, to change us, to mature us. And may we indeed be found at peace and growing in grace even today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.